Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, December 12th, 2021. And today, first of all, our thoughts go out to everyone in the states that were affected by the massive swarm of tornadoes that occurred over the last week. Just devastation. Unbelievable. I know there was one tornado that was on the ground for over 200 miles. Yeah, it just seems impossible. Gutting. Absolutely. So our thoughts are with those people affected, with the emergency response team trying to, you know, help as many families and communities as possible. This was a pretty extensive part of the Sunday news shows today. I would say at least a third of most of the shows. Some of the shows. Some of the shows looked at this kind of devastating overnight emergency, um, we decided to not necessarily look at the coverage of this topic specifically on today's episode of Polylog, though it is very, very important. We just kind of want to make a couple of notes. Today is really about the most immediate response, right? Because it's literally, I mean, this happened Friday night. Right. And so there are still people who are being searched for. There's still... You know, it's an active recovery state, right? And we, there and there are people without homes, like there's without homes, without power, with you know, just without towns. I mean the towns, the towns are, are leveled. Right. Certain towns are leveled. But we hope that moving forward that this isn't just a story about this one weekend of devastation and kind of emergency response, but you know, we always look at the Sunday morning political shows as an opportunity to have a broader conversation. So we'd hope that Moving forward, maybe next week, maybe the week after, at some point, there's a conversation about climate change and how it might be impacting tornadoes. These types of tornadoes are very rare this time of year. You know, emergency response systems, communication systems. There's so many kind of bigger stories. Workplace safety. Workplace safety would be another one. Bigger stories that I think are very apt in trying to analyze the situation that we would be really appropriate for Sunday morning political shows. And there were some glimmers of some of those topics in some of the interviews, in some of the reporting that I saw, in particular on Face the Nation. They had some good, very short, but good facts about climate change as it related right, to exactly. it. exactly. And it's not appropriate today, of course. Like, we're still hoping we find bodies and people, right? Like, that's... <laughs> That's the most immediate need right right now. I think what you're saying is it's hard to have those deep, in-depth, like, what are you going to do about it sort of for the future planning discussions with governors and local leaders when they are focused on the on the ground, how do we save people's lives? So the story should be ongoing is what I mean. Yes. And I really hope it is. It does get frustrating when we have like moments like this that are literally on the Sunday shows in a big way one week and then they disappear disappear. the next week right and they shouldn't disappear they shouldn't but there were other big news brendan yes we woke up to huge news chris wallace 
This was his last week on Fox News Sunday as the host. So we'll have a bigger discussion about that big news. But to start us off, Brendan, what shows did you look at? So I took a look at Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace. I looked at Face the Nation, hosted by Margaret Brennan, and I looked at This Week, hosted by Jake Tapper. How about you? So I looked at Meet the Press, which was hosted by Chuck Todd, and I also looked at This Week, which was hosted by George Stephanopoulos. And what stood out to you as a highlight or quality moment? So I have a quick little funny quality moment, and then I have like an actual real quality moment. So the first, (laughs) you know, mini quality moment was a bit of refreshing honesty in the tribute that Meet the Press had about Bob Dole. And apparently Bob Dole is the second most frequent guest on Meet the Press, only behind John McCain. So two Republicans. Sure. And they included lots of clips of Bob Dole's appearances. This is a couple of them. You want to be president? I thought about it a lot, yes. Why? Well, I really believe that I have the experience. I think I've provided leadership over the years. On this program, have you ever told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of love that. (laughs) At least he was honest there. I know. Honest about being dishonest ultimate integrity (laughs) so just (laughs) i really love when the shows are able to do something like that especially as a tribute when someone passes which i didn't see on any of the three shows i looked at there was literally a like two second aside i think it was on face the nation oh wow that's so surprising yeah it's really surprising but my other actual quality moment was also on Meet the Press, it happened during an interview that Chuck Todd had with Senator Roger Marshall. He's the senator or a senator from the state of Kansas, a Republican senator. And I just thought they were very simple questions by Chuck Todd trying to get a sense of Senator Marshall's understanding of election integrity in 2020 and just seeing how blatantly in conflict they are. Do you believe you were uh, elected fair and square in 2020? You know, absolutely I do. I think Kansas has some of the tightest election laws in the land. Uh, we went back and looked looked at that to make sure that it was a safe and fair election. So proud of our Secretary of State, so proud of our county clerks and those people that volunteer checking the IDs to make sure yeah. that every person got one vote. Uh, we're just really proud of how Kansas could do it. Other states could look and see how Kansas does it. And do you believe that Joe Biden was elected fair and square? You know, Joe Biden was sworn into office. I called him Mr. President since the day he was sworn in. I still remain concerned about election. I still remain concerned about election integrity. I I think that that we need to go back and look at what did the states obey their own laws? Did they obey their own constitution? It's a bit of sliminess. That just looks slimy. That's all there is to it. Well, and good for Chuck Todd setting it up like that. He could have gone straight to the second question, but he didn't. He went to the first question, which uncovered that. And then he was hot on his heels to say, you didn't answer the question. Yeah, very clever. Brendan, did you have a quality or questionable moment? Yes, this is a moment at the end of State of the Union that probably should have been at the beginning of State of the Union and all the other shows. It was hugely important news that is just getting overlooked, not getting the attention that it deserves and it deserves a lot of attention 
Here is a bit of that. We learned more this week about the efforts by Donald Trump and his team to overrule the will of the American people and steal the presidential election based on deranged lies and wild conspiracy theories. On Friday, Trump attorney Jenna Ellis confirmed the authenticity of two memos published by Politico. One of them, dated December 31st, proposes a way for Vice President Pence to not count the electoral votes for Joe Biden from Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Because, she said, Republicans in those states were disputing their results, though, as always, we should note, these disputes were rooted in wild and unhinged lies. Make no mistake, the folks from this movement do not believe in free and fair elections. They do not believe in your vote counting unless you vote for them. Their platform is disenfranchisement, and derangement. It is undemocratic, and it's frankly un-American, and they're doing it right in front of all of us, right out in the open. Trump once said, quote, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose voters. He did try to kill democracy once, and he's going to try to do it again, clearly. But this time, with a little help from his friends, he might actually pull it off. So this was a much longer segment with a lot more detail, but hugely important news is happening on the front of understanding just how far the Trump administration and Trump himself and his lawyers and his staffers went to try to basically steal the election, you know, from Joe Biden, steal the election from the American people who had voted and decided. Like, that's the other thing we should talk about. It's not just steal the election from Biden. It's steal the election from the American people. And Trump worked to do this, and somehow that's all okay? Like, apparently no laws were broken or no one's being prosecuted on that? It's insane. But good for Jay Tapper highlighting it as we learn more and more. It should not be, like, thrown under the rug. Like, certainly we know January 6th happened, but there are new and very important and damning facts that are coming out week by week that need to be covered because, as Tapper says, this isn't a look back at the past. It's about the future and where the party's going. And that questioning that you just highlighted on Meet the Press is a perfect example of how this is ongoing. It is not just about the past. So good, really good for Jake Tapper to mention it, which it wasn't mentioned on any of the other shows I covered. Naomi, was it mentioned on any of yours? There was a bit on this week. Oh, well, good. And I do know that a few weeks ago, Chuck Todd interviewed Michael Cohen, Trump's former lawyer, but that was more about Trump's business dealings and not necessarily about this topic. All right, let's talk about the elephant in the room or the elephant that has left the room, Chris Wallace. I originally wrote in this section, Chris Wallace leaving, and then I had to change it to Chris Wallace last show, like Chris Wallace gone. He's gone. That's it. He has left Fox News. So this was a huge surprise to us, but apparently we weren't the only ones who were surprised. As this story kind of trickled out there, we came to learn that not even the panelists who were on the show this week, including people who worked at Fox News, knew that this was going to happen, that he was going to say this in his final moments. And even producers on his show did not know that this was Chris Wallace's last show. That's how close he kept it to his vest. Now, apparently, Chris Wallace signed a four-year deal four years ago that was set to expire this December, and apparently he did not extend that deal. Right. So 
about, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes, an hour, I don't know, a bit after the show ended, there was some additional news that Chris Wallace is actually moving to CNN+. Plus. I feel like CNN and, and NBC News are kind of in like a talent war right now trying to scoop up as many people as possible. There's been some big changes, people retiring or people moving over or, you know, what have you. And, you know, he's never been on a streaming show. He's always been on cable. So maybe he has new power or new authority, new freedoms to kind of explore different shows. But he's been at Fox News Sunday for 18 years. Yeah, absolutely. So just a bit about CNN Plus. The reason that he's being scooped up and all these people, a lot of people are right now, is that these news networks are trying to start streaming platforms because that's where everyone is going these days. People are cutting the cord on cable. But the problem that these news networks face is that they can't just copy State of the Union and put it on CNN+. Plus. They can't do that because they have agreements with affiliates, you know, your local stations all around the country, country to, and also with cable news networks, in, this, in the instance of uh, CNN State of the Union, to have, like, exclusivity so that people will actually pay for cable or so that people actually tune in to these affiliate networks, these local networks. So they can't just put that stuff on their streaming platform. Therefore, they have to basically recreate a whole new network, kind of like a 24-hour network or whatever they want it to be, uh, and on their streaming platform. Or they have to have their same talent, like Chuck Todd, produce new programming for that network, which is what Chuck Todd is doing with shows like Meet the Press Reports. So Chris Wallace, apparently his show will not be a Sunday news show. It will be a five day a week show. And it will be him kind of like interviewing newsmakers and sports folks. And that's why Chris Wallace in his farewell mentioned he's going to talk about more than politics. Here's a bit of that farewell that stunned everybody. Finally, a personal note. After 18 years, this is my final Fox News Sunday. It is the last time, and I say this with real sadness, we will meet like this. 18 years ago, the bosses here at Fox promised me they would never interfere with a guest I booked or a question I asked, and they kept that promise. I have been free to report to the best of my ability, to cover the stories I think are important, to hold our country's leaders to account. It's been a great ride. We've covered five presidential elections, interviewed every president since George H.W. Bush, traveled the world sitting down with France's Emmanuel Macron and Russia's Vladimir Putin. And I've gotten to spend Sunday mornings with you. But after 18 years, I have decided to leave Fox. I want to try something new to go beyond politics to all the things I'm interested in. I'm ready for a new adventure. And I hope you'll check it out. And so, for the last time, dear friends, that's it for today. Have a great week. And I hope you'll keep watching Fox News Sunday. So some general thoughts about kind of what it's been like covering and looking at Chris Wallace's work for the last couple of years. You know, we started Polylog four and a half years ago, not looking at Fox News Sunday. And we got a lot of requests from listeners and people we'd meet and they would ask, what about Fox News Sunday? What about Fox News Sunday? What about Fox News Sunday? And at the time we were like, we don't have time. Four shows is hard enough. 
Yeah. And we made the commitment to look at Fox News Sunday. And I think it's really made Polylog stronger in terms of having a very different approach and style. Because I think Chris Wallace really can be a really strong, effective interviewer. He does so much work and preparation for some of his interviews. I mean, just having those follow-ups and the data points and the statistics ready at when there's like a crappy answer. Yes, it's it always feels like when he's doing one of these excellent interviews, which is not always, but when he does he one of these do excellent ex- interviews, mm-hmm. his trick is and seems to be that he anticipates what the answer is going to be to each of his questions. He writes out what the questions are that he wants to ask, and then he seems to anticipate the answer and then is ready already with the follow-up, which could include another fact, another question, as you said, Naomi, facts, statistics, or a clip, an audio clip. And that is, it seems like it would be basic, you know, the basic process for any interview, but no, most people don't seem to do that because they're not ready, and oftentimes they're not even listening to what the answer is to the question. They're just trying to go down the list. And Chris Wallace, at his best, did not do that. And it made for some excellent interviewing. And he really did a great job, I felt, when interviewing administration officials. Absolutely. And we saw that both within the Trump administration and even now. Yes. But that said, he didn't always do that, right? He didn't always treat each interview like his best interviews. And that could be frustrating. Well, especially once you know the type of interview he can do when you saw other interviews where he let things slide or he wouldn't follow up or he kind of let some questions that were just kind of BS answers and he didn't kind of have that same rigor, you'd, you'd be stuck trying to understand why. Yeah, like, for example, after news kind of broke early this year about how Jake Tapper and also Chuck Todd were maybe not inviting on people who and I should say Congress people who had voted against certifying Joe Biden's victory, Chris Wallace made a point of speaking out and saying, look, we have to interview these people to hold them accountable. That's what our job is. We can't just pretend that they don't have power. They do have power. But sometimes Chris Wallace, like if you're going to invite these people on, you should be asking them really, really tough questions and holding them accountable and following up And for example, this week, unfortunately, Chris Wallace had on somebody that some of these other shows have not had on in a long time, and that is Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. And Chris Wallace asked some really tough questions, but he didn't have very strong follow-ups, and he let bad answers or failure to address the question just kind of slide, and ultimately gave Lindsey Graham a platform to spew a lot of misinformation and be evasive, and that was very disappointing to see. I should also note another of Chris Wallace's strong traits was that he didn't often get flustered or emotional in interviews, and he tried to keep things civil even when he was asking tough questions, which we couldn't say about all the other hosts out there. Some people (laughs) love a good fluster. Yes. Uh, I do want to close out by saying we're looking forward to seeing where Chris Wallace goes, CNN Plus is supposed to start sometime early next year. They don't have a real launch date at this point. But what we are told is that Chris Wallace will be there on day one. 
So that's exciting, and we'll, we'll check that out. And we're going to continue looking at Fox News Sunday. Fox News itself said that they're going to have a slate of rotating hosts until they can find someone more permanent in that role. So I assume we'll be seeing some faces that we're used to seeing in the next few weeks. And uh, Chris Wallace did close out his program with a strong power player of the week. It was strong, first of all, because it wasn't a repeat, which is nice because there have been repeats over the last few weeks, but also because of the content. So I'll just play a little bit of his intro from that, and then we'll move on to our main segment. Right now, there are more than 100,000 Americans on the waiting list for an organ, and each day we lose 12 of them. But what if there were a way to unlock the tragically short supply of organs? Here's our power player of the week. We're only able to supply about 25% of the organs that are needed for the people on the waiting list each year. Dr. Robert Montgomery of the NYU Langone Transplant Institute on the urgent need for organs. It drove him to a medical breakthrough. The first ever pig to human kidney transplant. This segment is newsy, but it's also super important and something we should talk about way more, which are the number of people on the organ waiting lists. The only thing missing, and by the way, this guy, this Robert Montgomery, Dr. Montgomery, who was profiled, what a story Chris Wallace tells about him and, and who he is and what his history is, you know, talks about how this doctor, doctor was inspired to go into medicine and transplant and become a, a, a an actual surgeon himself by his father who died waiting for an organ. Apparently his father didn't qualify because his father was over 50 at the time. And then Dr. Montgomery himself needed a transplant so and got one. And now he's doing all this research. So what an incredible person to, to, to profile. I do wish that Wallace had mentioned, you know, sign up to be an organ donor, something you can do now while we wait the 10 years that it'll take for this human to pig transplant thing to become available. But, you know, just major kudos for having someone kind of so in the news so recently doing this type of important work and featuring them so prominently. Absolutely. All right, Naomi, what stood out to you in politics or journalism or anything? What's your main segment today? So I wanted to look at the story about U.S.-Russian relations right now. President Biden had a video conference this week, I believe it was on Tuesday, with Putin essentially addressing the escalating tension on the Ukrainian border right now. And I thought that Meet the Press and This Week had very different approaches to examining this story. And I think there's pros and cons to each. So essentially, this week kind of leaned on on the ground coverage and subject matter experts or people who kind of follow diplomacy and kind of foreign affairs really closely. Yep. Didn't have anyone from the administration, just kind of the experts. And Meet the Press didn't really have, you know, packaged segments or any kind of Brian Engel from (laughs) Ukraine or anything like that, but they did have an inclusive interview with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. So just very, very different approaches and both had value in really different ways. And so I kind of had, it got me thinking about how there are pros and cons to each. Yeah, a really perfect example to compare and contrast. Absolutely. So I wanted to start with this week. So as I mentioned, 
So they were the show that used subject matter experts. They started this show with a correspondent in Ukraine (laughs) and having really amazing visceral footage of what it was like on the Ukrainian border right now. This first clip is just senior foreign correspondent Ian Pinnell kind of giving the context as to what this call with Putin and Biden was about and kind of how it relates to the on the ground situation in Ukraine. For weeks, Russia's been amassing troops along Ukraine's eastern border. U.S. intelligence officials reportedly say that as many as 175,000 could be there by January. The Kremlin unhappy that Ukraine's moving too close to the Western NATO. It set up a critical test for the Biden administration. A renewed invasion would be far more devastating than the last one and have effects well beyond Europe. Some experts fearing it could even embolden China to seize Taiwan. President Biden this week used his secure video call with Putin to warn him against sending troops over the border. So I just thought it was kind of a really interesting, like, this is why the call happened and why it matters. Then Pinal goes on and interviews with people, like actual Ukrainians who are affected by this. After Tuesday's call, both leaders agreed to continue discussions, but it gave few clues whether Russia will now de-escalate. Russia's repeatedly insisted it isn't preparing to attack while talking about red lines and engaging in high-stakes brinkmanship to try to force the US and NATO out of Ukraine. This week, Ukraine's military gave us an exclusive look at US-supplied weapons, Javelin anti-tank missiles. It's rare to see these weapons deployed to the front lines in the east. This is exactly the kind of aid Putin sees as evidence of American meddling in Russia's backyard and Ukraine on an unacceptable trajectory. No one really knows what Putin is planning. Is this all about creating pressure to extract concessions? Or does he really plan to use force? For Ukrainians living near the front lines, the threat of invasion looms large. But after eight years, it's also become part of daily life, and few told us they feared an invasion was imminent. Do people talk about the Russians being on the border? Are people concerned? Mm, I would say, I would say no. Since Biden's call with Putin, Russia's kept the pressure up. On Friday, Ukraine accusing Russia of a de facto blockade of some Ukrainian ports. Putin also comparing what he sees as the war on Russian speakers in the east to a genocide. Whatever Vladimir Putin decides, Ukrainian troops at the front line say the only thing they can really do is be ready. Ready to fight? Ready to fight, yeah. Ready to die? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Why? So I wanted to include several different voices because I just think, you know, this type of reporting is rare, to be honest, on the Sunday news show. I'm sure ABC News is using the work of Ian Pinnell on a lot of different shows, or at least I hope so. You know, I imagine he's getting on kind of the, the nightly news and what have you. But I think it's really effective, and I think it's a way to kind of really show the breadth of the ABC News team to be able to kind of get this footage. I don't remember the last time we've seen the voices of people in their respective countries, like not in the U.S., talking about a situation that is affecting them. Well, I, actually, it's on fascination, I feel like, m- pretty frequently. Well, when it comes to COVID and the reports that we see from... Oftentimes, it's the reporter. Yes, I forget her name. But we don't hear like these extensive clips back to back to back of people 
from all over the world nearly as much. It's kind of like her giving a synopsis of how COVID is around the world. Yeah, actually, I, I think Elizabeth Palmer does do that from time to time. Maybe not quite as back to back as this every time, but she does get the voices of people on the ground. Yeah, possibly. I'm just thinking like in the stories of Afghanistan and the story right. of like, you know, the French energy crisis, whatever it might be. You don't hear from so many people. Usually it's usually just kind of a diplomat or whatever. So I thought that was kind of effective, especially compared to what happens immediately after this, which is an interview or a little like mini panel that George Stephanopoulos has with Martha Raddatz. Again, she's their, I think, the chief global affairs correspondent and former ambassador William Taylor. I thought both of their insight in that conversation with George Stephanopoulos was really interesting in different ways. Take a listen to this first clip in which <laughs> and former Ambassador William Taylor pretty much like annihilates George Stephanopoulos's like crappy question about Ukraine being complacent and put some context as to why it wouldn't be in Putin's interest to invade Ukraine right now. Is there any real mystery here about Putin's intentions? He insists Ukraine is part of Russia. He published, what, a 6,000-word essay this summer talking about that, heading toward almost 200,000 troops on the border. We just saw those Ukrainians say they're not too worried. Are they complacent? I don't think they're complacent. You also heard those Ukrainian troops say they're ready to die. They're ready to defend their land. And they are. They will fight fiercely. They, uh, they have fought fiercely, as you say, for seven and a half years. They will continue to do that. But no one knows, in answer to your question, what's in President Putin's mind. No one has, has figured that out. He might be bluffing. He might be just moving these troops up for, uh, for purposes of getting, trying to intimidate President Zelensky or President Biden or NATO, um, or he might be serious about about taking over Ukraine. Why is, wouldn't he invade? Why wouldn't he? Because it would be rationally, it would be very, very costly, not just the economic sanctions that President Biden is talking about. The, the number of Russian troops that would die would be very large and Ukrainians as well. He would also lose for example, that pipeline that is so important to him from, uh, from Russia to Germany, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. It would be a very bad move for him, and very costly, and that's why, that's why he wouldn't. So just some really interesting context here from William Taylor, again, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, who understands kind of like Ukrainian politics and Ukrainian stakes very well. You know, I thought he put the kind of, that, that this risk that Putin is considering I think he explained it really well for anyone who might not be understanding the situation very closely. In comparison... Well, I just want to say, like, what a demeaning question. Are they complacent? I know, right? (laughs) It's so gross. After they literally say they're like... They're ready to die? Like, were you half listening, George? Like, did you actually see the segment? Did you watch this segment? Yeah. What an odd question. And George seems to be like, of course he's going to invade. Why else would you bring troops there? It's like, well, actually, there's a lot of reasons. It's just very flippant of a very serious situation. Yeah. From George. And speaking of a very situation, Martha Raddatz then kind of also provides context as to, like, just the brutality of the Russian regime and why this so-called potential bluff seems so possible. 
Military front, Martha, what do we know about the Russian capabilities and the capacity of the Ukraine to respond? Well, I, as, as the ambassador said, the Ukrainians have a lot of combat experience. They do, but they would be crushed. They, they truly would. Russia's ability at this point and 175,000 troops, think of that. When we went into Iraq, we were nowhere near 175,000 troops. But also remember back to 2014 and this point about Russian troops. They, there were reports that Putin set up mobile crematoriums because he was burning the bodies of those who were killed so the Russians would not see caskets coming back. He has to be thinking about that. But they could move in swiftly. Look, the administration and officials are telling me they are not faking it. Putin is not faking it. But on the other hand, he may be really good at not faking it. I mean, he is moving in those troops. After that call uh, with President Biden, they added more troops. They added at least 10,000 more troops. So if he's bluffing, it's a very, very good bluff. So again, just powerful context as to the will he won't he situation by President Putin and the encroachment of Ukraine. Which, of course, leads to the question, what are we and the rest of the Western countries going to do about it? Exactly. Which brings me to the conversation. And there were some questions about that in this panel, I I should say, about kind of what are Biden's choices. Was Pinnell on the panel? (laughs) Pinnell was not on the panel. (laughs) Oh my gosh, Brendan. But so that brings me to the interview that Chuck Todd had with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Now, Anthony Blinken being kind of our chief diplomat is really the top person other than President Biden that any journalist could talk to about trying to understand our diplomatic strategy with Russia. And Chuck Todd starts this interview with Anthony Blinken questioning what is actually feasible by economic sanctions and wondering if Putin will even take them seriously. Uh, I want to start with what uh, President Biden said he told Vladimir Putin. He said that there would be economic consequences Mm. like none he's ever seen or ever have been seen. I want to put up this graphic of all the different ways we have tried to confront Russian aggression and Putin aggression since 2014. Ejection from the G8 multiple sanctions, import restrictions, expulsion of diplomats, asset seizures, cybercrime indictments, more military aid to Ukraine. None of it, Mr. Secretary, has curtailed Putin's behavior. Why do you think these threats will do it? Well, first of all, Chuck, uh, we don't know that it it hasn't curtailed uh, his behavior because uh, he might well have gone further. Uh, Back in 2014, uh, he seized Crimea. Uh, he invaded uh, eastern Ukraine, might have gone even further than that had there not been a, a resolute response. But right now, what the president made very clear to, uh, to President Putin, what I've made very clear to uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, uh, my counterpart, is that uh, we are looking at and we are prepared to take the kinds of steps we've refrained from taking in the past that would have uh, massive consequences for Russia. In fact, I'm here uh, in Liverpool with the G7 countries. They are equally resolute in their determination to stand against Russian aggression, to uh, ideally uh, deter it, prevent it. And we've made clear as well that there would be massive consequences if Russia commits renewed acts of aggression against Ukraine. So these are questions, Brendan, as you mentioned as we were playing it, that have been asked before and Blinken has given before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this exact exchange, I mean, I think Chuck Todd was a little more specific here than I've heard him in the past, but I've heard Chuck Todd ask that question and heard that answer before. Chuck Todd just doesn't seem satisfied with the answer. 
Right. And I do think it, he does a good job about kind of laying out what those economic consequences have been so far and that, you know, the situation isn't getting better. And what's missing from Secretary Blinken is any specificity on what he's talking about. He's like, oh, well, these are things that we were, you know, we had taken off the table before. Well, what? What are they? What are you going to do? Right. And Chuck Todd has another question kind of later in the interview that I thought was really interesting was like, how has Russia been able to kind of get to this point to begin with? Like, we're in a pretty not great situation. Why hasn't the action of Russia amassing troops and terrorizing Ukraine right now been a trigger for any punishment? Well, it's been a, it's been a trigger for action. It's been a trigger for us bringing together allies and partners ar- uh, around the world, starting in Europe with our closest partners, NATO, uh, again, where I was just a couple of weeks ago, uh, bringing people together to make very clear not only the deep shared concern, but the fact that we are prepared together in a coordinated way uh, to take very strong action if uh, Mr. Putin uh, continues his aggression uh, against Ukraine. So we now need to see whether uh, he's not only received the message, uh, but responds to it. And there is another way forward. That's something else the president suggested to, uh, to President Putin. And I've done the same with my Russian counterpart and others, and that is diplomacy. Russia uh, and, and Ukraine agreed many years ago to something yeah. called the, the Minsk Agreements, a way of diffusing the crisis in eastern Ukraine, giving Ukraine its border back. Uh, and uh, what we'd like to see now uh, is actually uh, Russia implementing its commitments under that agreement. We're going to test that proposition uh, together with our European allies and partners uh, and see how Russia responds. So I think this question is really important for a couple of reasons, because I think it it doesn't give enough detail, I think, to the aggressive nature of Russia's encroachment on Ukraine in the same way that we get in the kind of expert conversation on this week. But it is demanding something more from our chief diplomat to help us understand why we could even be in this state to begin with. And you hear in this answer from Secretary Blinken that, you know, that there's this strong desire to work in coordination with our partners, with NATO, so that it's not just a U.S. response, but it is unclear still if that strategy has made any dent in keeping Russia back. Yeah, you know, this is interesting. I I do appreciate Blinken just reminding people, look, these are, we're doing what we can diplomatically because it's hugely important to try to stop this without war, which should be obvious. I think it's important for everyone to take a step back occasionally and recognize that, like, it can sometimes seem in these situations where we hear about, oh, well, they signed a treaty. So, of course, they did the Minsk agreements. They have to honor that. You know, it's like people might have a knee jerk reaction to say, well, whatever, it's a sheet of paper. Russia can just stomp right through it. And, and you know, there have been plenty of examples in history where that's happened. But it's important to remember that, like, diplomacy works most of the time. Like, most of the time, countries are not at war with every other country around them. Diplomacy might be required for enforcement of those treaties. Yes. Right? That Like, the treaty itself is not the solution, but diplomacy is needed to kind of continue the promise of what those treaty was supposed to accomplish or exactly to update it or whatever yeah and it's not just like another war to come up with another treaty that'd be dumb well you know it's kind of a different topic but the example the point that you made naomi is hugely important uh if you read into some like constitutional law scholarship 
a lot of it is reminding people like, look, the Constitution is just a sheet of paper. Like it has no power beyond what we give it and the way that we honor it. We have to continue fighting to keep the Constitution real. Like there's no guarantee that everyone's just going to honor it. The paper isn't what does it. It's the way we continually update our thinking around it and continually reaffirm our commitment to it. It's more like a tool than like a wall with like bricks. I mean, it's literally just a sheet of paper, right? That's what these all these things are. But people have to constantly be reminded like what what's really at stake. What's the reason that that was negotiated in the first place, right? Yeah, that's true. But there's another angle to this that I think is really important, and that's the role of our European allies. And essentially, they are kind of a big hindrance in being more aggressive against Russia. And Chuck Todd kind of makes that question explicit in a way that I think it wasn't quite as explicit in the expert panel on this week. And I should note that this is actually a follow-up question that Blinken is answering. So he got two questions about kind of European strategy and NATO. Are European allies the ones more hesitant at stronger action against Russia than what you and President Biden would like to do? Well, look, what I can tell you is this. I'm I'm here at the the G7, the meeting of the the world's largest economies, including many uh, European partners. We just put out a statement uh, in the name of all of our countries uh, that warns of massive consequences if Russia commits acts of aggression uh, against Ukraine. I was at NATO, as I said. I found uh, all of our allies uh, very resolute, both in their deep concern about what Russia uh, may be doing Mm -hmm. and may be planning, as well as their determination uh, to, to take strong, coordinated steps Uh, if Russia does act aggressively. That's the best way uh, to deter Russia. Now, there are other steps that that, that we've been taking as well. Uh, We've been continuing to shore up uh, uh, Ukraine's defenses so that it can better defend itself if Russia uh, commits acts of aggression. Uh, We're also looking at what NATO can do, if necessary, to better defend itself. But at the end of the day, Chuck, uh, what is far preferable to all of this is diplomacy and dialogue and de-escalation. And if Russia moves in that direction, uh, then uh, we can avoid having uh, having another crisis. Yeah. Uh, we can avoid the potential for, for conflict and we can move things to a better path. So just a really interesting response here by Secretary Blinken, essentially saying that, you know, not throwing our European partners under the bus. I think that was very clear throughout this Blinken interview saying, you know, Europe is with us and really trying to hype up this kind of joint strategy with NATO and our general European partners and trying to, you know, respectfully downplay the difference in opinion and frustration of the Biden administration that some of the European partners, specifically Germany and I think France, too, is still moving forward on this kind of oil pipeline, the Nord, too, that was mentioned on on the This Week clip. You know, that's been a huge source of frustration for the Biden administration that Europe was willing to kind of move forward with that huge project. So just very interesting dynamics here and kind of conflicting stakes in terms of keeping Ukraine safe, protecting its sovereignty, keeping Russia back, but also like the general energy needs of Europe and, you know, how aggressive, you know, these Western states are able to kind of take on against Russia at this point. Yeah, this is a fascinating interview because a lot of the times we speculate on who these guests are actually talking to when they talk. 
I mean, if you have someone like Lindsey Graham on, you know he's talking directly to President Trump or talking directly to Joe Manchin, as he was today. But sometimes we're like, oh, who is this for, right? Is it for the public? Is it for people in Washington? Who is it for? I think we can say for this interview, Blinken was not speaking necessarily just for the public or people in Washington, but to Russia itself. Because obviously everything the Secretary of State says is being parsed and analyzed with even greater detail, I imagine, than we are even analyzing this interview by the diplomatic services in Russia. 1,000%. That's true. So overall, I think I enjoyed the expert panel on this week a little bit better, but I did find value in the Blinken interview. I just think I was able to get more out of the Blinken interview because I had seen this week first. And so, I mean, I can't say what I think of the Blinken interview if I had to listen to it first or only looked at the Blinken interview, but it really just shows that sometimes different strategies kind of really help shape a much fuller experience kind of as a news consumer. We can't do that for every you know topic, but if there's a story that's really important to you, it might be something to consider. Right. As a consumer, look for different styles exactly. of discussion on it. And as a show, maybe, maybe change it up a little yeah, bit. <laughs> present different styles. And speaking of changing it up, that's what my segment is about. It's about kind of a new segment that State of the Union decided to do on the topic of mask mandates. Take a listen. We're going to try something new on State of the Union today here to debate whether vaccine mandates are the best way to end this pandemic. Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson and New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. First of all, we should both note that you both agree that the vaccines are safe and effective. You've both gotten them. You've repeatedly urged Americans to go get vaccinated where you disagree on whether or not the government should mandate that. And this is on the topic of vaccine mandates, not mask mandates. And so when this first started, I thought, wow, this is very interesting. And it's actually a fascinating thing to see on the Sunday show. Now, I can almost anticipate some of the criticism of this debate by people who don't like the Sunday shows or, or who are very skeptical of the Sunday shows saying, why would you debate this? Vaccine mandates are super important. We are in the middle of a pandemic. How is there even a question about this? But the reality is the reality. And that is that lots of governors, Republican governors, are resisting vaccine mandates. And actually, it's not just Republican governors. Like, there are no vaccine mandates that are statewide anywhere in the country right now. And there isn't one. I mean, there there tried to be, you know, Biden tried to make one at the level of businesses and at the level of healthcare workers, but he has been stopped from implementing those by various courts driven by Republican states. So this is a legitimate conversation to have because it is a legitimate debate that is happening in the country right now. And I want to note that as Tapper introduced there, it's really important that both of these people recognize the facts on vaccination being important, safe, and effective. Here is Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson's basic argument on the topic. And in this clip at the beginning, you will hear him talking about the strategy of the Biden administration demanding that businesses, over 100 employees, need to mandate that their employees either get vaccinated or get tested. 
to put this into the businesses does a number of things. One, it, it hardens resistance. Uh, that's what we see in, in Arkansas, but I think across the country. Secondly, the courts have struck it down. Uh, by and large, uh, the president's mandate, these mandates are unconstitutional constitutional overreaches and the courts are looking at it in that fashion. Uh, it's a little bit closer case when it comes to a city because that's the government closest to the people. But if you're looking at a, a, a million employees and you get a 90% vaccination rate, you still have 10%, which is 100,000 workers. And whenever the businesses are struggling with workers, our service providers, they're providing for their family, you don't need to add 100,000 to the unemployed list. And that would hurt us in trying to do our recovery, provide the services we need already struggling, even in the healthcare industry. Mm -hmm. uh, if you put that mandate in, you're gonna lose some healthcare workers as well. So that's the reasons, part of the reasons that we oppose those mandates. So there's Hutchinson's argument. Here's outgoing Democratic Mayor Bill de Blasio on his argument. And the bottom line is what we found with all the mandates, we did this with the private sector already, with restaurants, uh, indoor entertainment, fitness, and what we found is, in fact, employees overwhelmingly agreed and followed through. They may not have thought they would like it originally, but they ultimately chose to get that shot and, in fact, realize that everyone was safe in those settings. The customers have loved it. I've heard this consistently, and I've heard it from restaurant owners. They're full now because people go in confident that they'll be safe. So it's been very good for business. What's bad for business is the threat of potential shutdowns and restrictions. I've, I've got business owners terrified that we're going to go back where we were. And de Blasio, in other portions of his responses here, notes that 71% of residents of New York City are fully vaccinated, and Arkansas, with no mandates, has only 50% of residents fully vaccinated. And de Blasio notes that before the mandates in New York City were in place, 57% of residents were vaccinated, and now it's 71%. I also really appreciated Blasio underscore just kind of the confidence levels, how much they go up for both business owners and customers yes. as they go into spaces knowing that the vaccination rates, vaccination mandates has upped the vaccination rates. And, you know, the people around you, the people serving you are all vaccinated. Yeah, absolutely. That does increase confidence tremendously and makes people feel like, you know what, I can go out here. I can spend time here. I don't have to have this like nagging worry at the back of my mind. But I want to highlight too that Hutchinson's point here is interesting as well, which is, look, we have resistance. There is resistance. We can't pretend that there isn't resistance. And some people are willing to even lose their jobs in order to be resistant to these mandates. And what I find frustrating about a conversation like this, and what I found frustrating throughout this pandemic and this year of vaccination, is like, where is the data, right? Where is the show data that shows what actually works to increase uptake of the vaccines? Where are the studies? And why isn't the government commissioning these studies to find out what messages, what policies actually move the needle? And is there data from other regions, because things might change region to region to region. Because what's interesting about this debate on CNN between these two people is that both of these people are arguing about effectiveness. Right. You know, they're not saying vaccines are, you know, one isn't saying vaccines are bad and the other is saying vaccines are good. They're both saying vaccines are good. 
But Hutchinson is saying, look, a mandate will make people more against the vaccine. It will not be effective. And de Blasio is saying, no, it is effective. Here's what happened with me. But of course, how do we know that the rates that went up in New York, the million people that de Blasio states got vaccinated after the mandate was put in place, did it because of the mandate? They might have done it because there were other surges going on or... They had gotten their first dose, now they need their second dose, or they were planning to do it anyway, or whatever. There's lots of reasons beyond mandates that those people got vaccinated. So we don't know that. We don't have studies that prove that. And until we do, we just have people arguing their various points. And it's like the audience is left with, I mean, how do you decide as an audience member which side you want to be on? Which facts do you find more compelling? So I went looking for data on this issue, and I found some information But again, I did not find something that said, look, here's what actually worked. Here's what didn't work. If if a reader can find that, you know, definitely send it our way. We'd love to highlight that. But I don't think it actually exists. But what I did find was a McKinsey study that was published in September trying to look at resistance and effectiveness and basically kind of polling where people were. And throughout this pandemic, they have been polling people and putting them into different categories. Categories including those who are already vaccinated, those who are interested in vaccination, those who are cautiously interested, and those who are unlikely adopters. And the interesting point that stands out across time, and they've been doing this polling from December of last year all the way through midsummer of this year, or late summer, they determined that Well, almost all of those groups changed in size. Obviously, more people have gotten vaccinated. People who are interested in vaccination ultimately decided to get vaccinated. People who were cautious about vaccination ultimately got vaccinated, right? Like everyone moved except the unlikely adopters that stayed between at its high 19% and at its low 14%. Like there, there has not been a lot of movement among that group. So people who are in the cautious category right now only represent 8% of the population. In the beginning, they represented 45% of the population. But those people now, according to McKinsey, are more likely to identify themselves as women and to be in a household with less than $25,000 in total income. And their top concerns are around safety and side effects. Nearly half of them are concerned about long-term side effects. But interestingly, nearly a third of them said that they had received the flu shot in the last year. So they're open to vaccination. And so there's definitely an opportunity to move those people into the vaccinated category. But half of the people who are not vaccinated right now are is that half of unlikely adopters that has hardly moved at all. A quarter of these respondents say that they're less likely to get the vaccine because they don't like being told what to do. And only 8% of them agree with the statement that the current spread of COVID-19 is being caused primarily from the people who won't get vaccinated. Only 8% think that it's their fault that this is still happening. So the ultimate point that this article states and and the conclusion that the McKinsey team reaches is it's probably going to make more sense to continue chipping away at that cautious and somewhat unlikely category rather than the very unlikely category of people. I'm sorry, it's a cautious and interested category. Let me say that again. So one of the points that the McKinsey article makes is that governments and policymakers and public health officials should continue to focus 
on that half of the population that's unvaccinated that is willing to move and not the half that has continued to be unlikely to move. So it may be true that for half of the people who are unvaccinated, mandates push them towards vaccination, but the other half, it makes them more resistant to it. But here we're talking about the United States as a whole. So it could very well be true that in New York, you have more people among the unvaccinated who would be moved to sign up for the vaccine if there's a mandate. Whereas in a place like Arkansas, you might have, a, might have a higher percentage of people who are unlikely to get the vaccine who become even more entrenched if there is a mandate. Basically, both things could be true for these areas. And that's the thing, right? Like both of these elected officials, like the governor and the mayor, are trying to come up with a strategy that's going to be most effective for their constituents. And without the context as to what the vaccination rate is, what is like the will never get vaccinated versus is hesitant in their respective places without some context as to mandates for employers versus only large employers or like not that you have to kind of do a full you know five minute package before their little kind of debate or you know comparison exercise but it just ends up being like i'm from the northeast i agree with de blasio or i'm from the midwest and i know hutchinson is right like it makes it so easy to just side with the leader that you know and respect or recognize or whatever rather than trying to have that full understanding of like should there be a federal mandate or really should it like vary by state or whatever like i just feel like it doesn't it doesn't get to the heart of the nuance enough to help you have any like concluding analysis you know what i mean it's just like oh well i know how the mayor is doing it and like oh hutchison cares too well i think at the base of the premise is the assumption that there is one answer that is true exactly for everyone everywhere and that's not the case i think that's exactly right there might not be just one strategy and that's what maybe we have to kind of come to terms with (laughs) i don't know but it oh right exactly that like and that's not saying you give up on people who would be resistant to a mandate and wouldn't comply you don't just say well then we won't have a mandate and we'll just let things go and we won't even mention you should get a vaccine anymore no you like you deploy other tactics that could help chip away at that group and help them get to that place where they're willing to take the vaccine and hopefully protect themselves and those around them but what makes this so difficult is that we don't have a lot of these studies and the government isn't putting them out there and this is the closest we can get to a nuanced conversation But again, these are politicians, and the premise is flawed from the start, but that doesn't mean there isn't meaningful nuance and information discussed. So very interesting segments. It's been a while since we've had kind of like some true comparison across shows, or in this case, comparison within an interview (laughs) for your segment. And it's kind of nice to see there isn't always a cut and dry answer, and that sometimes... You need a little bit of everything to understand something fully. Yeah, I think that's really the the lesson today and probably our dialogue challenge is to look for those other sources of information, consider those other perspectives, and also recognize that there might not just be one answer that's applicable to everybody 
everywhere. If you'd like to email us any thoughts about today's shows or today's comparisons, you are welcome to do so. You can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow me at Sotoneomi underscore. You can follow me at Beastidle, and you can follow the show at Polylogcast. And thanks, everyone, for sending in notes and thoughts. Uh, if you're a new listener from NPR, we do appreciate that. And we hope the dialogue continues. We'll talk to you next week. Talk with you then. Bye. Bye.